This evening's talk is about the second, the third, and the fourth foundations or domains of mindfulness. And we'll begin with a question. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? Last evening, we explored the first domain, the first foundation of mindfulness, the body in the body. And this, this evening, we'll begin by taking a look at the second domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings, Vedanupasana in Pali. This foundation of mindfulness is potentially, potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes through each of the sense doors, the body touching, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and the mind door, states of mind and thinking, provides some kind of specific information to the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through uh, each sense door contact with all of the various phenomena that we experience. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and clearly classified into three groups. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, which we could call neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or mental stimuli. Attachment Emotional attachment or aversion to sense-door experience is a result that often very quickly follows along directly from these feelings. So for instance, when one experiences a pleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental phenomena with some object, for most of us, most people, there's an almost immediate emotional attachment to the feeling, or to the object, or to both. When the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it always does, the desire to get it back, or to get another one, comes along quickly, either quite overtly or subtly. A craving for arises with craving usually immediately preceded by dissatisfaction, and sometimes also very quickly followed by a state of dissatisfaction. And so our peace, our our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being is disturbed. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, an inner restlessness, 
which translates in modern language as stress. Mental and physical stress. The experience of craving itself is experienced as some degree of a burning contraction if we experience and see it really clearly. So again, stress. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, most of us, most people, almost immediately experience emotional dislike or some degree of aversion. Maybe fear, or boredom, hatred, anger, or disappointment. We want to get rid of, or get away from the object, or the feeling, or both. (coughs) So again, our mental peace is disturbed. And so again, we're experiencing stress. As we begin to sense and see and know our experience more and more clearly, we find out that so much of the stress, so much of the suffering in this life comes directly from one's relationship to experiencing pleasant and unpleasant feelings. When the feeling is at least to some degree neither pleasant nor unpleasant, somewhat neutral, Often, very often actually, for many people, the tendency is to ignore what's going on. Not connecting to the present moment's experience. Maybe accompanied by a subtle or not so subtle state of wanting. Not being particularly interested in being with the experience of that moment. I think it's pretty accurate to say that most of us are intense experience junkies. I mean, you're smirking, smiling, etc. Yes, we're intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're likely to pay attention, whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant. If it's not intense, we often don't notice. We might think, well, nothing's really happening. And so again, we're craving something or experiencing the aversion of boredom or both. Without intimate and careful mindful attention to feelings, they have the potential power to disturb us emotionally, to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change. The very same object that produced pleasant feelings in our mind, sometimes just within moments, can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind, and of course vice versa. So again, we experience attachment, clinging, and various states of aversion. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering. Remembering. The connection that mindfulness offers us to see things just as they are. So a story uh, 
regarding in relationship to a three-month retreat that I sat uh, quite a number of years ago now. In those days, uh, there were shelves uh, in, in a small back dining room at the Insight Meditation Society for yogis uh, to store their special stashes on. I don't think there are such things anymore, but I'm not sure. <laughs> One day, uh, I found a note uh, for me uh, on top of my stash. And it was from the person whose stash was next to mine. But at that point, I had no idea who that person was. I hadn't looked and taken notice at all. And this note was offering me some green tea. Well, a very pleasant feeling arose. Being noticed. Ah, yes, being noticed. A gift being offered to me. And I like green tea, so that was even a bonus. So I answered this note with a very simple thank you. Then there was another day or two later, there was another note on top of my stash, and it was offering me a hat. This person uh, next to me, uh, stash next to me, had noticed that I was going outside without one, and it was beginning to cool off outside. Well, not such a pleasant feeling arose in my mind with the offer of a hat. I felt somewhat impinged upon, not liking the attention at that point, in fact. But, the, but I answered the note politely, and I thanked. Uh, at that point, I thought, I, I kind of noticed who it was. It was a him. I thanked him, and I said, I have a hat. Thank you, I have a hat. Well, another day or two later, there was another note on my stash, and it was a question, a practice question, and a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in the mind, followed by a very quick uh, unmindful reaction to write back a note that was not a polite note. But fortunately, uh, mindfulness and wise discernment kicked in, and I didn't write a note back at all. I didn't write a nasty note. I didn't write any note at all. And at that point then, I just simply relaxed and let go, and the note stopped. Never another note came during the rest of that retreat. At the end of the retreat, I, I spoke with the person who had, Stash was next to me, who had sent me all these notes. And uh, he, had, he, he had gone through a similar turmoil, he said, and he was very grateful uh, uh, at, after going through his own personal turmoil that I didn't answer him the last time. He said he was very happy not to write any more notes. as I think you would all probably agree, that when you feel pleasant or unpleasant as a result of contact through one of the sense doors, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object itself, nor is the feeling within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling is a response or a reaction in the mind. So what is, is it that most often is the root of the feeling that arises in relationship to our experiences? 
in my three-month retreat story, the mental feeling tone and the subsequent action of answering the first two notes and the mental feeling tone followed by a reaction in my mind with the third note were all very clearly coming from a place of self, coming from a place of me. When we begin to see that all of the feelings that we experience are within our own mind, that we ourselves are really primarily responsible for the feelings that we experience, we begin to know that we really can't blame others for the way that we feel. What for many of us are habituated storylines such as he made me angry, she made me just feel terrible, he made me feel so happy, the surgeon caused me pain, this place or these people make me feel so peaceful, this place or these people make me feel so miserable, etc., etc., as we begin to pay a careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines actually begin to lose their strength. They begin to kind of fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, blaming others for our pleasant or unpleasant feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really truly work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, letting go of the myths that we have about ourselves and about others. The various beliefs that we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of or not capable of, how we define ourselves and identify ourselves. We have the opportunity to let go of, to relinquish various beliefs that we have about our bodies, our mind, our emotions, and our creative capacity. Beliefs that we've held onto and stuffed into the crowded closet of our mind. And instead, right now, just simply pay attention to our experience just as it is in the moment. It's really so simple. It's hard to believe that this is all it takes. Although, as you know, though it's simple, it's not so easy. The potentially illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feeling tones is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct, immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment, clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral, we can, in moments, just see 
experience and know bodily sensation, visual forms, odors, sound, taste, and the manifestation, various manifestations of thought forms, and know the attendant feeling tone. Not pretend it's not there, not ignore it, know it. And that just be that. In that moment, there's actually no mental suffering. The heart, the mind, aren't disturbed. It's actually a moment of ease, a moment of peace. And as I and others can say from our own personal experience, it takes a lot of diligent practice to get to this point. Giving birth for the first time 53 years ago was my first formal teaching and practice in mindfulness, although it wasn't called that. The Lama's birthing method was a training of being fully present, awake, and aware in a process, the birthing process, that was happening in and of itself and that I was certainly very involved with. Throughout the training we were told that any resistance to the process that was uh, taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant, which I very quickly discovered when the birthing actually began. Getting myself out of the way of it, while at the same time being totally present with what was a very intense physical process, I remained engaged and aware in the midst of it all, which was not easy in the way that we usually think of things being easy. But it was actually really quite okay, and actually mostly neutral in the light of pleasant and unpleasant feeling. Selfless engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be incredibly interesting and really truly filled with awe and wonderment. And that awe and wonderment was pleasant. It was a very powerful lesson that has continued to inform me over these 53 years since it happened, 53 years ago. And as I've already mentioned, the Buddha tells us we're happy when we're mindful. There was a pervasive happiness that accompanied me throughout the birthing process that I now really clearly understand was there because I was very mindfully present in the process. When you engage with a full presence in the physical and mental experiences that are happening in your body and mind as this retreat unfolds, 
And of course, with any of the creative practices that are being offered in this retreat, movement, seeing, drawing, and writing. And when any of these experiences show up as being pleasant or unpleasant or maybe neutral, one aspect of our practice is to be mindfully aware without making something out of it. Very important, without making something out of it. Meaning without interpreting, without speculating, without analyzing or evaluating. As we meet and connect to experience with an unfettered mindful presence, we find open-hearted interest and authenticity which is what helps to bring clarity to the seeing and knowing of our experience with the possibility of spontaneous creativity and joy emerging. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering. Because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant or push away, avoid, or ignore the unpleasant. Learning to mindfully observe feelings with more balance, with more equanimity, and thus with less attachment, less aversion, and identification is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So this second domain of mindfulness in our practice, contemplation of the feelings simply in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the six sense doors with what we can call bare awareness. With bare awareness, providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences, just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and certainly maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors or mental states. And this being the third domain of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind. Pali and Pali, it's citta nupasana. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to experience. So, for example, we go to the marketplace. The marketplace here on retreat of the lunch food display. Maybe there's attraction. Maybe there's aversion to some of the sights and smells. Maybe, and maybe the mind wanting more of something before you even finished what's on your plate. Or the marketplace of 
where to do walking meditation this hour, maybe this morning. Or maybe which shirt to put on today. Or maybe the marketplace of thinking, for instance, well, what or how should I report my practice in my practice meeting tomorrow with Marcia? And maybe rehearsing this over and over and over again. Or maybe in the last sit of the evening, I wonder what will be served for lunch tomorrow. You're not even hungry, but, you know, maybe that's come up. Or maybe upcoming. How should I move in response to the direction that Win has just given? Or will give starting tomorrow? Your mind might hold you prisoner for a few moments with any of these thoughts. With an intent of mindfulness, we have the possibility of recognizing that often these attractions, aversions, and ponderings are rooted in old conditioned habits of maybe needing to be in control or needing to get it right or wanting to be noticed or approved of or with the food thinking that maybe there's not enough because surely more of this will make me happy. All of which is actually based in some degree of fear. In a moment of mindfully seeing, mindfully knowing this, we might just simply relax and let go and spontaneously respond in an appropriate and easeful way in relationship to the situation. And we may have to recognize and to do this practice a number of times before we're really able to let go and really able to get it and really able to understand and proceed with wisdom rather than continue caught up in our habitual suffering. Living here in Taos, a place that many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace because beauty abounds here both in the environment and in all of the shops in town. So when I first moved here um, over 20, 22 years ago I went through a period of a particular practice. I'd walk down the street and look into the shop windows and watch my mind and body. Awareness of seeing. At first, just awareness of seeing, just seeing. Seeing various forms and colors of kind of bare attention. And then I would notice the coloration in the mind of wanting, leaning into. Even sometimes the strong desire 
of seeming need. Greed, coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A good practice in the midst of the marketplace. Any marketplace, actually. I continued this practice for quite a while until I finally found myself uh, more and more often just seeing the forms and the colors followed by simply, joyfully, and appreciatively bearing witness to the beauty and appreciating the great skill and uh, tremendous creativity of the makers of all of the objects that I was uh, seeing in the shop windows. To sustain and deepen in our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required of us are honesty and humility. Pretense, self-deception, and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So for instance, If another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing greed or some form of aversion, it doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states, bringing mindfulness right into the greed or fear or anger or grief or sadness. And, as you know, this isn't always so easy. Tremendous interest, energy, and humility is needed to sustain the observation. To see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without pretense, without self-deceit, and without judgment, you don't try to project a different image to yourself, or to anyone else. Vimala Thakar, who was one of the great Indian teacher Krishnamurti's closest closest students and who was quite a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, said this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. In light of Vimala Thakkar's words, a story that the Dalai Lama tells about himself. A number of years ago now, he was taken window shopping to some big city, I think it was in London, 
to an area where there are lots of small shops that sell all kinds of mechanical parts, small mechanical parts and systems. And the person who took him to this uh, part of London knew that he was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. For instance, he loves to take apart watches and work on them and then put them back together again. The Dalai Lama said that he found himself looking in the windows of the shops, at first simply seeing with an open curiosity and interest. And then he said, all of a sudden realizing that he wanted everything. He said, I wanted all of it. And he said, I didn't even know what any of it was for. I just wanted it all. Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, how driven am I by my desires and my attachments? How driven am I by my resistance and aversions? So taking a look now at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation your experience in meditation. So for instance, a moment of calm, maybe deep calm, a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No thought about it, just it as it is. Just calm and maybe even tranquility. And maybe then quickly followed by grasping, wanting this very pleasant experience to never leave. Maybe there's even some degree of fear arising about losing it. Losing my tranquility, my calm. Without judgment, directly seeing and knowing this experience. This experience of attachment. This, too, is very much a part of our practice, an important part of our practice. The Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, by knowing your mind, you may avoid your mind disabling you. You have to be very alert, or else your mind will play false with you. It's like watching a thief Not that you expect anything from a thief, but you do not want to be robbed. In the same way, you give a lot of attention to the mind without expecting anything from it. Mindfulness is able to know the mental factors or coloration in the mind of wanting, greed, within the greed itself, or the colorations of anger, or hatred, or fear, or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself, maybe from its very arising, its very particular characteristics along the way, how it acts, its changing nature, and its ending, its momentary cessation. A 
moment of sense to our consciousness might be colored by faith or by delight or by dullness or by some form of aversion as I'm sure you've experienced at times and maybe been mindful of each of these mental factors each of these colorations arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience such as a breath a bodily sensation a movement a visual image a sound, a taste thoughts in the form of memories and plans and projections and fantasies or images in the mind in the Abhidhamma which is a very clear and detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from a Buddhist perspective. There's a long and detailed list of the many and various mental factors that may quickly come along to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment experience. This degree of perception and distinction with such minute detail regarding each and all of these states of mind really isn't absolutely necessary for our practice here. It's enough for you at this point to be mindfully aware of the more usually and ordinarily experienced colorations at any given moment of consciousness as they arise, as they quickly change, and as they cease. So, for instance, mindfulness, knowing delight, calm, joy, kindness, faith, liking or disliking, judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear or anger or hatred, guilt or remorse, irritation or appreciation. That's already quite a long list. But we all know, have experienced every one of those, all of us. Knowing any of these mind states in relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, moving, touching, or thinking. And again, a reminder. The essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, good or bad. It's just this, in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, no manipulation, no judging or evaluation of experience. And if there is grasping, rejecting, manipulation, or judging, or evaluation, we need to be mindful of that. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindful awareness of mental factors, states of mind, seeing and knowing in themselves 
the colorations that come up in relationship to bare experiences that come in through any of the six sense doors. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points us to is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas. That's the Pali word, dhammas, and the word in Sanskrit is dharmas. And in this case, the word can be translated as the truth, or the way of things, or the natural laws. And this domain of mindful awareness can be grounded specifically in any of the six sense doors. Again, the experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. This fourth establishment of mindful awareness, contemplation of dhammas, may also be grounded in the five hindrances, what are called hindrances, which are sloth and torpor, restlessness or agitation, doubt, or the grasping mind, or the aversive mind. The particular wonderful and illuminating specialty, so to say, about this fourth domain of mindfulness is that whatever our experience is, it's seen through the doors of Dhamma. It's seen through the doors of the way of things, seen and known through the doors of the nature of things, whether experience is in the physical or in the mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of truth. And this fourth domain of mindfulness can be difficult to understand for many people. So it's, I think it's important uh, uh, to explore it a little bit more this evening. So, for example, speaking briefly this evening about one of the insightful doors that particularly relates to mindfulness-based insight practice. And can be illuminating as we explore the roots and the unfolding of creativity in this retreat. This is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly, experientially, pay attention to and recognize and clearly come to know that every experience of body and mind is always changing, is impermanent, is anicca, the Pali word for impermanence or change. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything we perceive around us, begins and ends, arises and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, 
and surrender to this perfectly natural truth. What appears to be a steady flow of experience, even with the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion or the delusion being as though it's happening with an ongoing, continuous flow. When in reality, it's the beginning and ending, arising and passing away on the most minute level. Everything, all of it, second by second by second. And it's very possible with a great depth of practice to actually see this directly and know it. Every experience is anicca, important, or impermanent, and important, which is the first universal characteristic. And because of anicca, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And yet, we continue on through our lifetime searching for some thing, some experience that will finally satisfy, finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called the dukkha. And it's usually translated as suffering. I think that unsatisfactoriness is a more accurate translation. This is the second universal characteristic. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know within this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta. The truth that all experience, all phenomena is selfless. Meaning that its existence is totally interdependent and constantly changing. In other words, it's totally contingent in its existence, both within its own seeming solidity as well as in its seeming set or static place in the world. And our body being an immediately available example of this with all parts and all functions being totally interdependent and all of this constantly in flux. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid, sustaining self. As we begin to directly experience and know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, this third universal characteristic of anatta, or not-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The not-self, or sometimes called emptiness of self, of all experience, all phenomena, shows up quite naturally, and often in unexpected and subtle ways. We begin to truly understand that no matter how hard we might try, 
There's absolutely nothing that can be clung to. Even our often tightly grasped, seemingly set in place self-identities. The positive or wholesome identities and the negative or unwholesome identities, which include our attitudes about our creative capacities or the lack thereof. As we begin to intimately, experientially see and know these three universal truths, our relationship to life begins to change. Intuitive wisdom, equanimity, relinquishment, and the natural flow of a creative and compassionate life quite naturally begin to blossom within this seeing and knowing as we start to relax more and more deeply into simply and more clearly being here with things just as they really are. There's a wonderful metaphorical teaching uh, from Stephen Mitchell. It's his uh, uh, version of the Narcissus story, which I'd like to share with you. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors and a thousand photographs in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing in the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. In a conversation with his student, Megia, the Buddha offers an important and clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. And this is from the Buddha. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megia, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated, and that is Nibbana, here and now. And so as we go along in our practice, and when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of Dhammas, opens up the beautiful door to freedom, the simple and beautiful door to liberation. 
which we may experience just very briefly in moments, with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive throughout our life. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things, resides within everything, simply here to be seen, to be known. If we just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly, if we just take the time to be really present and look carefully. The setting, pace, and support offered in an intense setting such as this, this retreat, with formal sitting and walking movement, seeing and drawing, movement, sitting and walking, movement, seeing and drawing, and writing practice interspersed with each other is really a rare and perfect opportunity to deepen your direct experience and understanding of the reality of not-self. The truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart, and within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara, is nirvana or nibbana. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives, including our ordinary life here, right here in retreat, within the whirlpool of samsara, if we metaphorically stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, in that moment, we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, no longer conditioned by ignoring and being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant. We're no longer caught in the whirlpool of I like it, I don't like it. No longer caught unaware in the whirl of continually, unwittingly moving around and around and around the wheel in the midst of samsara, here in retreat, we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. Mindfulness is the tool, the medicine, that allows concentration, joy, equanimity, creativity, and intuitive wisdom to blossom. Mindful awareness is the primary tool, the medicine for our awakening. And as it was so graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, it was said, we take the medicine to purify the sickness and heal ourselves. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind. The world going on just as it is, 
thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different than anything else in this world, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to. The late Venerable Saidao Upandita speaks about the fact that spoke about the fact that essentially there is just one Dhamma that we need to practice, which is maybe quite a great relief for those who think that they have to practice many, many things, many, many Dhammas to be liberated. And in Pali, the word for this one Dhamma is apamada, which is sometimes translated as vigilance, and which can be understood as it's elaborated on in the commentaries in the suttas as mindfulness. So from this perspective, mindfulness is the one dhamma that we need to practice. In relationship to vigilance and the open-hearted receptivity of practicing with a clear, focused mindfulness, some words from Carlos Castaneda. Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art. The art of facing infinity without flinching not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of awe, says Carlos. We don't grow in a straight line. Both ascending and but in both ascending and descending, tilting and tilting circles. And what makes all of this bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The Buddha tells us, rooted in careful attention, careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accomplished in careful attention with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factors of mindfulness and discernment one penetrates and sunders the mass, of, the mass of greed that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of delusion that one has never before penetrated and sundered. And he goes on, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too when a monk When a meditator develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all the other factors of enlightenment, which are balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, that meditator slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana. It can be helpful to check in now and then to see if you're practicing in the ways that are really, truly 
moving you towards understanding, towards insight, really, truly moving you towards wisdom. And the realization of the heart qualities of metta and compassion. Practice that is subtly, or maybe more overtly, rooted in wrong ideas, rooted in misconceptions or misperceptions, can become deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us along the way of our practice for years. So a good question that you might ask yourself now and then, the question that we began this Dhamma Talk evening with, am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? And closing the talk this evening with a short poem from Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust mote. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on. Upside down. And let's sit silently for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.